As I was coming home, it was just about sunset, and we look in the sky and we see coming from the north from Iraq. Literally looked like it was a Scud missile coming through the sky with a tail on it. And I'm looking down at the airport that we're going to land, and we hear over the radio, alarm black, alarm black. And then all the lights at the airfield go out. And you hear the controllers, they're putting on their gas masks, and all of a sudden it just went dark. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We have a great episode lined up for you today, but before we get into that, I do want to take a moment and thank our Patreon pilots. Now, there are just a handful of you, but every little bit helps to pay the bills here at Soaring the Sky, so thank you so much for your continued support. If you can and would like to help support the show, please click the link right there in the show notes now or you can go to our website soaringthesky.com and click the support the show at the top there on the right now let's get into this episode joe aldrin joins us first to share his adventures now joe started his aviation journey flying sailplanes in the air force he would then go on to fly many aircraft and currently is a captain flying the 787 joe has logged almost 20,000 hours in the air so you can imagine he has quite a few stories to share with us today also, we have Sergio, the Soaring Master, with us. Sergio, what do you have lined up for us? Hi, Chuck. Today we're going to talk about some of the most complicated types of terrain to outland on hilly terrain. Thank you, Sergio. Looking forward to hearing this one for sure. Now, let's get into our chat with Joe. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for spending some time with us today to share your aviation adventures. Thank you, Chuck, for inviting me, and I do appreciate being on your podcast today. Absolutely. You know, our first question is one that we ask everyone, and that, of course, is how did your aviation journey get started? Well, my aviation career started with uh, my father. He was a career officer in the United States Air Force, and initially uh, he was an intel officer, and we got stationed overseas in the Philippines, and he was trying to compete for a pilot slot, and unfortunately, because of medical reasons, uh, he was not qualified to be a pilot, but they sent him to navigator school. And so he ended up going to Mather, California, graduating from navigator school and became a WIZO in the F-4. He applied for uh, UPT undergraduate pilot training several times, but was denied. And so that was a big impact on his guidance towards me. Uh, consequently, he recommended to me that I should go to the Air Force Academy. Because at the time, most of the people that graduated from the academy were guaranteed pilot slots. That's not, not a bad deal, guaranteed to get in, to fly? Yeah, so um, the academy, they, uh, we didn't, it was basically free as long as you planned on serving. And uh, if you were pilot qualified, they would send uh, basically, I think it was 60% of the class would go off to, to pilot training, six different bases. And at the time for my class, we graduated a thousand people. So six, uh, 600 of us went off to six different pilot uh, training bases. But while at the academy, I did learn to uh, fly. I was flying gliders there. And I'll get into that a little bit later. They had a program called Soar for All. And then um, I flew the T-41 there as well. And then after graduation from the Air Force Academy, I went to Williams Air Force Base in Arizona. And I flew the T-37 and T-38 uh, aircraft. And then from there, 
I was I received a KC-135 and went to school at Castle Air Force Base in California. And then it was off to uh, Grissom Air Force Base in Indiana. And then while at Grissom, uh, this was about 1990, a desert storm started and they sent me to King Khalid, Saudi Arabia. And uh, from there, I flew 38 um, missions, combat support missions during uh, Desert Storm, refueling all different types of airplanes. And then after uh, that, they closed the base at Grissom Air Force Base. And then I went back to the Air Force Academy and became a flight instructor in the uh, T-3 and the T-41. In 1995, I left active duty and went to the reserves and flew the KC-10 out of Travis Air Force Base. About the same time, I was hired by United Airlines and flew the uh, 737 out of LAX. During the uh, 26 years I've been at United, I've flown the uh, 737, the A320, the 757, the 767, and the 777. Currently, I'm out at Washington Dulles flying the 787 as a captain. It's been about a year I've been on the airplane. So that's kind of a brief history on how I got into flying and what I've done for basically the last 35 years of flying. Wow, that's a lot of flying. Joe, here on the podcast, of course, we like to focus a lot of time on gliders. Could you tell us a little more about your soaring experiences you've had and how it has affected your powered flight? Sure. Um, So at the academy, they have a program called Soar for All, and everybody who's a cadet at the academy will go through the program if you're going to fly or not. And when I was there, they've gone through three different airplanes, but it was the old Schweitzer uh, 233s, and that was the uh, tandem airplane. It was basically just teaching us how the basic training of how to fly uh, sailplanes, and it was the basic trainer. Uh, It was designated the TG-4 Alpha, but they also had TG-3 Alphas there, which were the more advanced gliders that if uh, you decided to become an instructor, you would start to fly those. Uh, the Soar for All program was a three-week program, and it was went the first part of the summer, the second part of the summer, and the third part of the summer. And if you were able to solo, then you actually got to go home early. So that was an incentive for most of the cadets uh, to solo. And uh, basically, you would fly two or three flights a day, and sometimes you would um, receive the airplanes, get them ready, or sometimes you would actually fly it. Uh, they were pull, pulled off of a r- runway by the uh, Piper Cub uh, tow planes. And we also had a motor glider program there as well. And the motor glider was a airplane that was a combination Piper on the front and a, uh, I think it was a Schweitzer on the back. And oh, when wow. they pulled the power to idle, it basically flew just like the glider. And what they thought was, and I think they proved this, was that flying around the pattern, we had an ox field out there that you could fly to. And when they pulled it to idle, it actually just like a glider. And they thought that they could cut the flights in half to solo by flying these motor gliders. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Now, everybody didn't solo in the program. It's just based on proficiency. So as soon as you were able to show that you could solo, it could be as little as two or three days or three weeks. But that was the extent of the program, which is basically introducing basic flight uh, skills to pilots and non-pilots at the academy. What was the average to solo that it took most guys? It, the average person would solo in about two weeks, but it was dependent, a lot of it was dependent upon the weather because uh, we were at 
uh, in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy at the base of the Rockies. So sometimes you get blown out or you'd have thunderstorms. But I, I think I remember I, I flew in about, I was able to solo in about six flights, six to seven flights. Oh, nice. But that was also about an hour in the pattern with a motor glider doing uh, eight or 10 different landings. And I was kind of at the, the leading edge, like one of the faster people within a week. Uh, on a good day, you get two or three landings. I think the fastest I see anybody go through was in about two days. Oh, well, yeah. And the motor glider, the instructors were officers, so they were captains and majors. When we flew the Schweitzers, uh, those were cadets that actually were flight instructors who were juniors and seniors. So a lot of times you'd have a 20-year-old that was instructing an 18 or 19-year-old. So it was basically threw you right in the fire as a flight instructor. And those glider pilots, instructor pilots, had several hundred flights while they were at the academy. And and that had a huge carryover to pilot training. They were at the top of their class just because of the skills that they gained and the experience that they had. So can you tell us about a flight or two in any type of aircraft? Because I know you've flown a lot of power, too. But over the years, this sticks out in your mind. And also maybe what you learned from that flight or those flights. Okay. Um, I remember just get back to some of the basic, the basic stuff before I get maybe into the airline and military stuff. But when I was a flight instructor at the Academy, when I came back, um, I was teaching zero time cadets how to fly airplanes. And we had just transitioned from the T-41, which was a Cessna, uh, basically a 172 with a 210 continental engine in it, uh, just for more power up at elevation at the Academy. And, we transitioned from the T-41 to the T-3 Firefly. It was a Slingsby airplane. It was built by the English. It had a 260-horsepower uh, Lycoming engine in it, and it had a, a wooden three-bladed Hoffman prop. And we used, to, we used to go up in this plane, and the syllabus was really ramp- amped up because at the time, the military officers felt that the sooner we can do – that they could introduce uh, aero – Batic maneuvers to pilots, the better. Uh, so we would do teach cadets that had basically no time. We were teaching them the eight aerobatic maneuvers that the Air Force taught in pilot training. And some of those maneuvers uh, would include slow flights, steep turns, you know, stall recoveries and stuff like that. But we also spun them and we flew uh, aileron rolls and Lemsha box and split S's. Uh, barrel rolls, all that stuff. And I remember one time going up with a, a student and introducing a spin to them. And in the spin, the engine quit on me. Oh. And so what I had to do was decide what I was going to do by maintaining aircraft control. And so I decided to, you know, fly the airplane first, which was get out of the spin. So I went through all the procedures for getting out of the spin and then restart the engine and then decide what to do with the airplane. And so my decision was to go ahead and land it the auxiliary airfield, which was pretty close, and have them look at the airplane before I flew it back home. Wow. So I guess the lesson learned there is that whenever you're flying, you have to always be ready for the unexpected. You never know what's going to happen to you. You have to have a game plan. You know, what happens if if my oil pressure goes to zero? What do do I do if I have a fire? Um, How do I get this on the ground? Where are my nearest airfields? You know, which way are the winds going? Where am I going to go? Do I have enough fuel to get there? Things like that. A lot of that stuff carries over from gliders because, you know, basically in the glider world, a lot of times you don't have an engine. 
and you're using kinetic energy or potential energy or, you know, how high am I? Where can I get to? What's the weather? How am I going to get this thing home and on the ground safely? During Desert Storm, I was a new co-pilot about 1,500 hours, and we were flying out of King Khalid International Airport. And uh, a lot of our missions would be to refuel the F-117. And we would go over to, we'd go over the border and to Baghdad, and they would, you know, drop their bombs on uh, electric plants or uh, communication sites and things like that. And on the way back, we would wait for them to drop their bombs on our side of the border and then refuel them coming home. And it was about a six and a half hour mission for the 117s or for us. And so as I was coming home, it was just about sunset and I, and we're already refueled the F-117. He was on his way to his base, which was different. And we look in the sky and we see coming from the north from Iraq. I mean, it literally looked like it was a Scud missile coming through the sky with a tail on it. And I'm looking down at, at the airport that we're going to land and we hear over the radio, alarm black, alarm black. And then all the lights at the airfield go out. They call that Skatana. They turn off all the runway lights, the ILS, the communication. And you hear the controllers. They're putting on their gas masks, things like that. And all of a sudden, it just went dark. And then from that field, I see the Patriot battery fire off two missiles, uh, the Army Patriot interceptor missiles. And they come up, and they it hit right in front of us you know, maybe a mile away. And we saw that, you know, the biggest light show fireworks show you've ever seen. Nice. And uh, they hit, they hit the uh, Scud missile, but didn't detonate the ordinance. Then we watched the Scud missile fall down into the city and explode. Oh. When we landed, um, bus driver picks us up and it was kind of like a scene out of MASH. He takes off his helmet and he says, do you want a piece of a Scud missile? And inside his helmet, he had all these parts from the Scud. The next oh, day, the uh, when we went to the restaurant, there it was. It looked like a water heater, and everybody was getting their picture with their foot on it. Mm. So it was a pretty interesting story, a wow. wild thing to see in the airplane. So, Joe, how many other glider pilots have you worked with or ran into that are airline pilots? So I've flown with at least 10 that I know that are serious glider pilots. Uh, there's a female that I just flew with recently whose dad was an airline pilot. And the first thing she flew was gliders when she was 14 years old. And she's one of the best pilots that I've ever flown with. And you can tell that her aviation skills are real high and her situation and her airmanship are, are really good. I've been out on the, on the East Coast for about five years now. And I've only met a few people out here that have talked about gliders. However, when I lived in California... I flew with several people that owned their own gliders and used to fly out of Warren Springs. Oh yeah, it's yep. one of the top top uh, glider ports in the in the U.S. And I have this friend Dean Chantils who uh, recently retired from United Airlines. But I remember when I flew with him, he would talk all the time about about his uh, his glider. I think it was a DG three hundred three, and um, the conversations were really interesting because. They talk. He would do a lot of the cross country where you tried to set the records for how far you would go. Sometimes he'd be in the truck chasing, you know, the other guys and the type right. of stuff that they would look for. And it was interesting because I, I go back to thinking about when I was a cadet at the academy, and they would talk about you know stuff that you know, I have almost twenty thousand hours of flying now, and it makes sense. But 
you know, when you're, when you're trying to get fine thermals and stay airborne, you know, you're looking for clouds, you're looking for mountainous areas, you're looking for winds that, you know, hit the mountains, go up, condense, form clouds. And a lot of times, you know, in the afternoons when, when I used to fly cross country, now I'm mainly flying international, but when we go across the Rocky Mountains, when we go from the East Coast to the West Coast, or when I used to go into Palm Springs or you go into Las Vegas, you know, in the afternoon, you get all the heating, the heating and the, and the rising of air and the turbulence. And so that directly, you know, impacts when we turn the seatbelt sign on, what type of, you know, turbulence we're going to get in front of us. And you can see it, you know, weather's really important for gliders and for the airlines. You know, it keeps yourself safe. Whereas a glider pilot may be trying to fly towards that to get, you know, um, potential energy. A lot of times we're trying to avoid the turbulence but it goes hand in hand as, as, as far as your airmanship. So I would fly. I got invited several times to go out and go fly with these guys' gliders. And unfortunately, I never took it up. I was so busy with kids and flying every two days. And now that the kids are out of the house, I have all the time in the world, and I'd love to get back up in a glider and go do that again. Um, so I'd say, to answer your question, there were several people that owned their own high-performance gliders. Uh, most of them have retired now. I don't hear a lot of talk about it. It was mostly kind of a West Coast thing. And I think it was because yeah. of the people that were flying out of LA and flying out of that airport there. Yeah. Um, I did fly to Hawaii for 15 years. And I think it was Dillingham Airport or something on the North Shore up there that a lot yeah, of the pilots right. and, and the fly, flight attendants would go over there and buy flights and go uh, go for glider rides. And they used to have a package where you could buy you know, five or 10 flights for... 500 bucks or whatever it was 20 years ago and that yeah. seemed to be a that seemed to be a something that a lot of people like to do wings and wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years they hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in north america and they ship globally nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. So one of our goals here on the podcast is to, of course, help grow the soaring community. With all the distractions people have now, it's, it, it can be tough. But do you have any suggestions on what we could do to help accomplish this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't tell you, but for about 15 years, I actually recruited for the Air Force Academy. So I dealt with the youth. I went out to high schools. Um, I worked with ROTC units at high schools, talked to Civil Air Patrol, uh, I was the commander of a small unit where we interviewed several hundred kids a year. And 20 years ago, everybody wanted to be a pilot. It's interesting that over time, um, unfortunately, you don't see as much interest as I did back then. And so it's real important to, to let the kids know that they can fly, the youth, that they can fly airplanes. And a lot of the questions I would get from people were, you know, when I asked them, do you want to go to the academy? And I'd ask why. And, you know, they'd say, well, you know, I want to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I said, well, you know, that if you go in the Air Force, 
that the main mission is centered around flying airplanes, right? Right. And a lot of times I'd hear from the youth is, do you really think I could be a pilot? They just had no idea that they could be a pilot. So I guess what I'm saying is a lot of it is awareness. So if you have a youth, if you have someone in your community, a friend, a kid of a friend, take them to the airport, offer them a free flight. And when you give them a flight, you know, encourage them, let them fly the airplane. It's a whole big different deal than when you actually fly the airplane, let them watch. And then when you give them the controls, you know, maybe bring them out to the airport, let them climb in an airplane, talk about flying. As a parent, you know, I bought my children incentive flights. And today I have a son who's graduated from the Naval Academy who's going through jet training out in Kingsville. And I have a daughter who's 19 who sold at 16. Oh, wow. And both nice. of those just started with an incentive flight. Very cool. Yeah, you never know where it's going to go. Absolutely. You've kind of touched on this already, but, you know, we've had a few airline pilots here on the podcast, and we always try to ask the question, how has soaring helped you as an airline pilot? But maybe you have some other information for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I thought about this when you asked me to come on the podcast, and some of my answer just seems obvious, but uh, it's really important. There's, you know, there's a couple areas that gliders have and small airplanes have a direct correlation to. And one of them is energy management, uh, fuel conservation, flying smooth airplanes, and then, um, you know, also observing weather and how it impacts you. So, you know, energy management. When I was flying gliders at the academy, one of the first things they teach you is how to manage your energy. So if you're coming into land and you're high, how do you get that glider on the ground when you don't, you know, you don't have an engine or something like that? So we would do simulated force landings where we would do circle down in 360 degrees and then use the spoilers or slipping the gliders. And when I later became a flight instructor at the academy, flying T3s and T41s, you know, we had a syllabus with students if they had to solo in about 12 flights. And if they didn't solo, then they were kicked out of the program, 12 to 15 flights. Whereas in the civilian world, you know, a lot of times it's just to proficiency you know, how much time did it take to get you there? But the military didn't work that way. So uh, we had to spend a lot of time talking about, you know, when you, in the overhead pattern, when you turn base, which way was the winds coming? How heavy is the airplane? If you're high, a lot of times initially, we would take the airplane and slip it, just like we did a glider, and get it onto a three-to-one glide slope ratio or a visual approach so that they could get a landing out of it and not spend an hour in the pattern and not get any landings. And it comes down to aim point airspeed. And that doesn't change at all. After 20,000 hours of flying airplanes, uh, when I come in on my 787, if I put the aim point down 750 feet down the runway, and if the airplane is not accelerating, uh, then I know that I can land in that landing area. If it is accelerating and I'm going too fast, then I have to put drag out. I'll either use gear or flaps or speed brakes. Now, obviously, you don't slip a major airline. But you can also do some right. S turns on, on final. So there's a lot of stuff that comes from just basically aim point airspeed flying the airplane. And then, you know, when we were learning in gliders, we would go through uh, traffic pattern stalls, approach to stall, things like that. So, you, you know, you, you, the airplane talks to you when you're, when you're flying it. You can feel it. There's a lot of seat of the pants, stick and rudder stuff. And you learn that from flying smaller planes with the autopilot off. And that all starts, you know, flying gliders and flying... Cessnas. The other thing is um, smooth controls. When you come into land a glider, I remember like my first flight 
a lot of times guys would come in and you have airspeed and then you, you have the ground rush come at you and you snap the stick or you pull too hard and balloon. And that's pretty common. So uh, on a 787, it has, it's a very clean wing like the A320 has almost a four to one glide ratio. Most airlines are about three to three to one glide ratio. But the 787, if you have no wind or tailwind, you have to be very smooth on the controls because if you pull back too hard, then you'll also balloon and you'll end up going around. So it's very similar to a glider. Uh, when I was flying KC-10s and triple sevens are a little different. When you put the flaps down, if you pull the power, it actually just falls like a ton of bricks. So not every airplane is the same, but the newer airplanes with the slick wings, with the better fuel burn and all that with the uh, because of the wings, they, they do act a lot like a glider, especially with a tailwind or with no wind at all. So you have to be smooth on the controls. It's kind of like playing golf. I was a golfer at the academy, putting. You know, so when you play golf, they always say you drive for show and putt for dough. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in putting, what I learned was don't do a death grip on the putter, right? Hold it very lightly in your hand, like you're holding a bird in your hand. You know, don't squeeze it so you see feather, feathers squirting out everywhere. It's the same thing on flying airplane. Um, when I flew the 767, KC-10, the 787, and I'll have hydraulically actuated uh, flight controls. When you get down into the rotation, when you level off and get into the flare, if you have a death grip on the plane, on the uh, control column or the stick and you pull back like a glider, your balloon, now you get into a PIO, pilot-induced oscillation. And sometimes you've, I've seen people where they push forward, which is never what you want to do because now your nose is going up the ground and uh, you have yeah. to push the power in and go around. So... So depending on the winds and conditions, you know, everything that you learned in a glider early on does carry over to flying bigger airplanes that have slick winds. There's a couple other things like um, I would say the fuel conservation. This is kind of unique to the airlines and maybe not to gliders. And you could probably speak more to gliders than I can. And gliders, you're always trying to have altitude or know where you're going to land and what your glide ratio is and, and flying slow speed and smoothly. In the airlines, as far as fuel, fuel is one of the biggest things we look at. So we'll fly up to the highest altitude that, that the airplane can go to. And we plan an idle descent into all of our airfields. And that's the most, that's the most fuel efficient way to fly an airplane. So we try not to descend before a four to one or three to one glide ratio. So let's say you're 160 miles away from the airport and you're at 40,000 feet. That's a four to one glider ratio. So that's right. about where you would descend on 787. And about three to one glide ratio says triple seven, you would descend about 120 miles out. And that's a no wind situation. But so we do the same thing. So we're looking like a glider where you basically lower the nose, pull the power to idle. And that's the most efficient way to save fuel. If the air traffic controllers start to step you down early, then all of a sudden your fuel burn goes up and you have to, you're constantly looking to see, do I have enough money or enough fuel to make it to my alternate? How's the weather? Am I overburning? Things like that. So you should always have awareness of where you're going. If something goes wrong, how I'm going to handle it. And, you know, as a good glider pilot or a small airplane pilot, I remember that with a single engine, you were the, the best pilots were the ones that always had a plan. They're always thinking in their head, what happens if this happens to me now? If you're just taking off from Colorado Springs and not thinking about anything, then sometimes you're going to get caught with the startle effect. And I do remember a very interesting story when I was, I was a supervisor of flying 
at the academy, and we had a um, F-15 pilot who, uh, after F-15s came to the academy, he was flying T-41s, and I was I was up in the tower controlling the pattern and heard from Colorado Springs that uh, he had crash-landed downtown. Mm. Uh, and so I got on the on the radio and, and on the phone and started talking to approach control and tower and uh, actually went out to the crash site. They lived T-41, but basically on climb out out of the academy going towards Colorado Springs, they had a uh, oil pump shaft shear and the they were over all a couple hundred feet over basically downtown, all houses. And oh, we had practiced this stuff at the academy every single flight. We practiced looking which direction the wind's from, where's my nearest airfield, where's my nearest uh, grass field, where's the nearest road, and then determining which way the winds are. You know, you would look at lakes, you look at blowing for ripples on the lakes, you look at blowing dust, different types of things. You look at the cloud formations, which way the winds were when you took off. And this pilot was able to do uh, 180 degrees, put a full slip in and land he didn't have enough altitude to land into the wind, landed with a tailwind in a couple hundred yard field and oh, put wow. it spot on the point, bounced, hit hit a tree, the only tree in the middle on the, on the left wing and did a ground loop and didn't hit any houses. And I think the field he landed in was two, 250 yards long. Oh, wow. And, and, I, and it's one of those things that we taught these cadets every single day. You know, not to just look out the window and say, this is great. You know, what happens if you lose an engine right here? Where are you going to land? And we used to do that with them all the time. Just pull the power. And it's the same thing in a glider, you know, going cross country. Yeah, you run out of altitude. Uh, where am I going to land? Is this a good field? Uh, you know, it's basically planning what's going to happen for the unexpected. Absolutely. It sounds like you need to get back in a glider. What are your plans for the future? What do you think? You <laughs> do some soaring? <laughs> I'd love to get back in the glider. I mean, um, it was a lot of fun, and it brings you back to your to your youth days. Uh, to be honest with you, I still have about seven and a half years to go. Um, I'm at the top of my career, 787 captain. I can't go any higher, but I have flown with several guys that are building RV6s and 8s and 10s and have asked me to get in on a build with them. So in my future, maybe building a kit plane or something like that. Um, I have a degree in mechanical engineering, so that sounds real interesting to me. Um, nice. Also getting my daughter through, um, she's at Notre Dame, and she's in uh, an aviation club out there, and she's a sophomore right now. But when she comes home this summer, we're going to start working on her privates again. So that makes me think about maybe buying an airplane, getting her up flying, and maybe do some of the part-time instructing with her. Uh, very cool. Joe, I always like to give our guests some time to thank anyone that's been influential in their aviation journey. I know you've flown a lot, but do you have anyone you'd like to thank at this time? Absolutely. Um, two people. Uh, one's my father. He, I don't think I ever would have flown an airplane or, or uh, been as motivated. He was always there with me, always supported me, uh, the most positive person I've ever met. And someone that we didn't talk about. My wife, my wife, uh, also went to the Academy with me and was a 30 year pilot in the air force. And we have raised three kids and both of us flying in the reserves and the airlines We've had quite a career flying. So she's always supported me and I, her, and, uh, she's always been a supporter of what we've done. And we've been able to have four pilots in the family 
So it's uh, both both my father and my wife. That's pretty awesome. Congratulations on the family. Families are number one. Thank you. So I'm going to throw you a curve here, Joe, and you can take it or choose to opt out. But <laughs> we <laughs> we do have a lightning round, and it's it's a lot of fun. But basically, I asked you some quick questions. You shoot me some quick answers, and you okay. can pass on any of the questions you'd like to pass. Okay. Or you can you can pass on the whole lightning round. But if you're up for it, we'll, it's all right. We'll, let's we'll, try it. All right. So if you're looking for good lift, would you rather follow a vulture, a hawk, or a raven? Probably a hawk. Pawnee or Piper Super Cub? Uh, Super Cub. Flaps or no flaps? No flaps. Thermals or ridge? Thermals. Wave or convergence? Wave. Fly cross country or stay close to home? I would have said stay close to home earlier in my career, but now that I'm flying all over the world, I'd prefer to fly cross country just because you never know what's going to happen. Nice. Bucket hat, baseball cap, bandana, or lidless? <laughs> baseball cap. <laughs> Long pants or shorts? Shorts. I'm from SoCal. There you go. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? Shoes. Pure glider or motor glider? You know, I've flown both. Um, I think I go with pure glider now. Uh, early, early in my career, I'd say motor glider just because you always have the motor. But you know, I think my aviation skills are up there that I could, I could handle it. It'd be fun again to fly without, uh, without a motor. Metal glider or wooden glider? <laughs> Metal. Now I know this probably doesn't pertain to you because you, you're not flying in the glider a lot of cross country, but. Uh, what the heck? P tube, <laughs> P bag, or diaper? <laughs> <laughs> I would go with a P tube. All right. Yeah. Uh, diaper's so, not for me. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> <laughs> polarized sunglasses or non-polarized? Non-polarized. Can't see. You can't see your uh, instruments with polarized. That's right. Okay, I got one last question here. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Closed. Joe, it's been really fun talking to you. I do want to thank you for your service. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck, for inviting me today. It was a lot of fun. And hopefully in the future you'll get uh, back in the glider and enjoy some nice flights. Absolutely. Sounds like a lot of fun. Appreciate the... Uh... Motivation too. I actually called some of my friends recently and talked to them about gliders. So we'll see. Maybe I'll get my daughter up. Maybe we can do it together. It'd be a lot of fun for us to. You can call them back and say, "Hey, I was on this uh, soaring podcast. You might want to check it out." <laughs> <laughs> I talked to one of my friends. He said that um, that uh, do, do you remember a Howie Bowl Jr.? Yep. Mm -hmm. He uh, used to fly with his dad. Oh, okay. And, uh, I guess he's, I've never met junior. I flew with, I, um, there was a senior too. I, I flew with the Howie bowl that retired recently when I was in the 737 and the 757. And I guess his oh, son okay. flies for Alaska or Delta or one of the airlines, but he's a big glider pilot. And so Dean had told me that, that, uh, he had been interviewed and I think it was by your podcast. Nice. Nice. Very cool. All right. Well, enjoy the flights and enjoy the family. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. Nice talking to you today. You too. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Sorry Master here. 
Today we're going to talk about one of the most complicated types of terrain to outland on, hilly terrain. To start with, keeping yourself within reach of good outlanding areas is one of our top priorities when cruising. By doing this, we can quickly divert to those areas if needed be, and then start selecting our outlanding field. Uh, even though landing on a plain area is the most preferable thing, outlanding on shallow hills is a super normal activity often carried out without any problem at all. But the pilot needs to take some additional precautions to ensure that things go as planned. Defining the terrain slope is the first thing we shall do when considering to outland on this type of terrain. And in order to do that, analyze the intended hill from all possible angles to reduce the shadow effect on the terrain characteristics. If is there any feature that can be used for you to estimate the terrain slope, use it. Uh, if you intend to outline on a region where the practice of contour farming is applied, look for the most spaced contour lines area and for the straightest ones. This will indicate not only a shallower slope, but also a constant section of that area, like the side of a small ridge, for instance. When it comes to the outlanding technique itself on a, on a hilly terrain, landing uphill is the golden rule, because you will deaccelerate as you roll and thus lose energy with each second that goes by. Do never land downhill. Uh, you will obviously speed up and the energy will only increase. Uh, not a good idea when out landing. Well, landing with a headwind is essential in any case. And to guarantee that, use any external source like smoke, wind drift from your sailplane, or your GPS indication of wind if available for you to ensure that you land with a headwind. The second question most pilots face in this type of situation is how to approach the hill, perpendicular or parallel to its ridge top? And the answer is, it depends. One of the hardest things to do when landing uphill is to judge your sink rate, because with the rising terrain, just by looking forward, you won't be able to have a good height estimation. The ground will rise much faster than expected for you to command your flare. So, in order to avoid a hard landing, you must kill your speed during the flare in a much faster way. Otherwise, we'll be buying a hard landing. During the approach pattern, do a mental briefing and prepare yourself to pitch up during the flare in a more aggressive way. When outlanding on hilly terrain with more angled slopes, or on small hills without a distinct ridge line, landing parallel to the side is an available option. By landing parallel to the side, the pilot can command a gentle uphill curve in order to match the terrain slope and your row angle. This is a very useful technique and must be obviously performed uphill. So pick up your aiming point at the base of the hill and when you fly over it, start a gentle curve and match the terrain slope with your row angle. And at the same time, command your flare. This will greatly reduce the chances of a hard landing because the sink rate and your 
closure to the ground will be much easier to be assessed. Discussing out landings on the ground while sitting on a chair is always easier than doing it for real. And unprepared fields will always be unprepared fields with its characteristics, each field and set of conditions like wind, gusts, etc. We require close pilot assessment of the situation and the key for a safe outlanding on hilly terrain is planning. Uh, closely assess the field, the conditions and come up with a plan A and a plan B. By doing this, you'll keep yourself away from a lot of trouble. That's it guys, see you in the next one. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website SurreyMaster.com If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.